I was definitely a new kid on the block and the only woman. Um, it was quite fun too because I was the first shop as it, as you came into German Street. So not only had I barged in as a as a female shop maker, but also that was the first one you came to from the the serious end of St James's and all the men's clubs and things. You know, it's very male world there. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips for making in the UK. So let's crack on with the show. Welcome to episode 120 of the Make It British podcast. On today's episode, I am honoured to be interviewing shirt maker Emma Willis, who many of you may know has a store on London's German Street, and she also has her factory in Gloucester. Emma is a really big advocate of Made in England and always has been. And this interview, she tells me about how she came about setting up her own factory in Gloucester, the wonderful apprenticeship scheme that she has there, and all about her early life. Did you know she used to be in a band before she set up her shirt-making business? So I hope you enjoy this interview with Emma. Here we go. Thank you very much for joining me today, Emma, on the Make It British podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Kate. So I want to cover the whole Emma Willis story today. How, how, shirts, why shirts? How did it all come about? Where did you start? Um, well, it was very accidental. I went in, started off life wanting to, loving all the arts. So I loved, I loved drawing, painting, singing, acting, um, writing. And that was one of those was where I wanted to go with my career. Um, and I went to the, um, I went to art school in London. I went to the Slade to study fine art and, oh. um, and I was there for a year, but at the same time I joined a band singing in a, in a band in London. Really? Um, I was having been brought up in the country. I was quite excited and distracted by city life. <laughs> and, um, and by the end of the year, um, the, my tutor took me aside and said he, he didn't think that I was doing enough work. Um, and he didn't see me as going to be a dedicated artist all my life. And, and what did I feel about it? <laughs> um, I, I sort of hung on for dear life for a bit, but I, I had to admit that I, I thought my place would be would be more w- worthwhile to somebody else. It would would warrant it more than me. So, so I left the Slade, and then I had to find a job. I was now you know renting a flat in London with some people. I had to pay my rent, so I hadn't got any. I looked in the back of the Evening Standard, and there was not one job I could do. I had no qualifications. <laughs> and um, and the band um, wasn't. It wasn't panning out yeah. very well with the band then. Well, it was great fun, but you make sort of ten pounds a night if you're lucky, and split it between yeah. five. So it's <laughs> and and um, we were playing lots of you know pubs and clubs and things. Um, so I I went started to work for this company. I saw a company was selling clothes, and it was like it was direct selling of clothes. So I started working for them, and it's all commission, and it's you know it's pretty hardcore direct you know hardcore door to door selling and um so very far from what i wanted to be doing um but 
needs must and I set off with a sort of bag of wares around London and and after doing it for about two weeks I was in Soho and it's pouring with rain and I went into the pub and I rang my boss and I said can I just sell the men's shirts I had more confidence in the men's shirts they had some quite nice men's shirts in there but the women's clothes were very slony and at the time I fancied myself you know as a bit of a a bit of a sort of punk singer or whatever <laughs> and, and I was trying to sell ruffle collar shirts and a-line skirts so they said that was fine so I started and also to make appointments in companies people I knew working there so I didn't have to have the humiliation of knocking on a door and being turned away um, and so I started to do that and on about one or second or third appointment up in the city um, I, I sold a hundred shirts before the markets opened and I came back on the bus and I thought I found, thank goodness, I found a way of making some money anyway, making enough money, and then I can carry on doing all the creative stuff I enjoy, but this will pay the bills. So that's how it started. Brilliant. So you were selling them to, so you were just knocking on the doors in the city for the sorts of gents that were going to buy these shirts. Was this in the 80s or 90s? So this is the 90s. And actually, I would make appointments, which is a way of, you know, it was a way of avoiding, it was trying to turn a job um, just to, turn a job that was was not much fun into just some a, a less a, you know a, a, a more palatable way of doing it so you don't have that humiliation of of, of being turned away so you had to the the you have to make an appointment to go to the company. I mean, nobody else was doing it with shirts at the time. There were a lot of tailors visiting offices um, and there were shoe people selling shoes. But so I was the first person to make, to actually start visiting big companies with shirts. So you um, found to your them direct niche. To them. I found a way of, uh, yes. And in the end, it turned out, of course, to find, uh, find my niche and what I've ended up doing with my, which actually I love now. But at the time, it was definitely, at that stage, it was a way of making money. Um, and, and, you know, just enough to pay the bills. And at what point did that then progress onto you having your own brand and your own shop? Well, I was then approached by one of my, um, the people I was selling to who had a big shirt company in Soho in Ham Yard, which is, was not the beautiful hotel that it is now. It was a very scruffy courtyard. And he had a pretty rundown shirt re, um, business and um, asked me to come and join him and set up a, 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 a direct selling part of it. So doing the same thing as I was doing, but um, we called it Leg and Pritchard. He put me up in offices in, in Ham Yard and, and I employed um, friends of mine to come and work with me. And we all then on a bigger scale sold our, um, I, bought, I bought shirts from one of the top British shirt makers at the time. Um, we stopped them there and then we sold them um, all around the city and then after about a year of that I decided to set up my own my own company um, and I came across a tiny little bespoke shirt company in um, in in New Cross and the cutter there was David Gale who's one of the great cutters of our generation um, and um, so I set up from that point I, I then that was when it became um, Emma Willis Handmade Shirts it started at the time but still with very low overheads I worked from my flat I rang all my customers um, to go and visit them direct again so no shop and um, and then I started very much on the bespoke side of, of shirt making and now I had a really I had really incredible shirts and that was when I first started to realize the pleasure um it became more creative not that it was my creation but it was there you know I was buying 
at that stage actually it was all, it was all bespoke so I would have to create pattern books and take them to my customers but I started to enjoy working with with creative people um it was almost enough for my creativity and it was also very nice to be able to sell and you know for me to sell gave them the work and so I felt this nice circular thing which I enjoyed to this day I basically I've ended up Yes, I, I, you know, I buy all the cottons. It is my eye for the, for, for whatever we, you know, with, with our look and with the ties and the fabrics and everything. Um, but in the end, I'm providing work for creative people who are making beautiful things. Brilliant. So it was all made in this place in New Cross at the time, mm-hmm. was it? So, so always yeah. made in England. Always made in England. I never, ever, there was only one time when it was very challenging times when I early on opened up in German Street and, and the rents were humongous now and I had such a different setup as far as costs. And I was tempted and we were having very weak sales time. Um, everybody was. And I was kept being visited by Turkish shirt makers. They were doing really yeah, well developing their shirt business. And there were lots of charming Turkish salesmen dropping it up and down German Street and very successfully. And I eventually buckled one day. You know, their prices were so much less and I didn't have my own production at that time because I I then when I had my children I subcontracted for a while um and um and I tried them and they could not make with these fine cottons and I must say they made incredibly well yeah I sent all these beautiful Alumo cottons out to them and they all came back and the collars were all buckling and I said you know I just can't possibly have these and um they were very but they said we can't make up uh, uh, we cannot make with these fine cottons so that was very interesting lesson too that you know that you have to be even more skilled to make with really fine cottons so I've, yeah. apart from that little tiny blip no I've I've always always felt very passionately about making here and I suppose that shows as well that not all shirt makers are created equal someone could say oh yeah we can make shirts but it's very different to I mean, I always think of Turkey as more sort of casual shirts rather than your very formal style of shirt. So that's probably why they couldn't get the the collars right. So at what point did you open the store then on German Street? And and were you one of the first women on, you know, in in the Savile Row area at that time? I think I was Stella McCartney was um, she was but I'm more on the suit and the tailoring in 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 Savile Row, but um, so I was the I think Stella was in this did she start in Savile Row but anyway she was the she was obviously a very forefront woman in in men's tailoring mm. and um, but in in German Street I mean the people like Nicole Fahey and things but they were in Catherine Hamlet she Catherine Hamlet not in in German Street but but um, um, Nicole Fahey was in in German Street but the other end and and. The, that's more of a fashion, I mean, and, you know, whole yeah. collection. So not, not a shirt specialist. So of the shirt specialists in German Street, which is you know, Turnbull and Asson, New and Lingwood, Harvey and Hudson, mm. um, Hildage and Key, Bud, um, I, was a, I was definitely a new kid on the block and the only woman. Yeah, um, that must have, was tell like, me about that. That must have been an interesting and challenging time was it it was quite fun too because I was the first shop as it, as you came into German Street so not only had I barged in as a, as a female <laughs> shop maker but also that was the first one you came to from the the serious Brilliant. end of St James's and all the men's clubs and things you know it's very male world there I mean yeah. it's slightly less so now but still pretty well with with you know that with with all the banking asset management fund um hedge fund businesses the um the all the men, men's clubs um 
And um, so I, well, the first, I, I mean, I always tell the story because it was so nice was early on in one of the first weeks and I did women's clothes as well at the first and I had one window with all the women's one with the men's I'd done it was it was we opened in um, November so it was really wintry coming up Christmas and I had one woman one window with a man's um, smoking jacket and cream silk shirt and um, but you know black tie and so that was that window and then it was so it was very rich sumptuous kind of traditional British looking thing and then the women's window there was a, a black um, satin mannequin of a woman a perfect petite figure with um wearing a long taffeta burgundy skirt with a huge taffeta bow at the wrist at the at the waist and then lots of pearls around her neck so um you know and so this man came down the street and i could i could feel i felt as i put this very grand, beautiful, very feminine skirt in the windows of German Street up the men's bespoke end. You know, <laughs> it was Brilliant. probably um, any wondering what the reaction was going to be. And this man came in, he very traditionally came and put his head in the door and he said, Emma, yes, I have to say that skirt in your window makes me wish I was a woman. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> So I thought, Brilliant. well, you know, if that's the kind of, that, that I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be pretty happy here. I don't think yeah. it's going to be, you know, there's, so um, I did have a, you know, people, I, I mean, I remember an Italian man coming in and saying, I mean, you know, you've got, I want to buy an ivory silk shirt for you, but women can't make shirts, men make shirts. And I said, well, you know, give mm. me a try. You can try one, see if women can make shirts. And um, and I made him an ivory silk shirt and he loved it and he's still a customer. Brilliant. So, and I That's think the really other thing good. was, Kate, I just um, technically, because I've been in the business now for 10 years, I knew most of the cutters in the street and they knew me and I knew the back, I, I, knew, I knew the sort of back office of our business. Um, and so they knew that I had had my own shirt making little you know factory in, in in new cross and i knew i knew i knew pretty well all the cutters we all knew each other i mean i did know all the cutters so mm. i had some um so people knew that i had been in the business a long time and and knew about it now so how has the i mean you've had the shop for what over 20 years now mm-hmm. how have you seen Savile Row change in that time, but also how have you seen the shirt industry change? Because some, you know, some of the names you mentioned, they don't all make in in England, do they? they don't all manufacture. Other people were more tempted by those Turkish yes. manufacturers walking down the street offering cheaper prices. So, yeah, yeah how have you seen things change? Um, well, I think both Savile Row and German Street, so shirt world, a tailoring world and suit world and shirt world have come far more into the the sort of the fashion world, become mm. part, far more part of, um, of art, especially of the bespoke area. I mean, when I started, um, the, the big Italian glamorous brands were the ones that people were aspiring to. And um, and, it, and and I think England, the sort of British traditional bespoke world of Savile Row and, and German Street were pretty out of fashion. And also perhaps in, in Savile Row looked at perhaps as, you know, as unaffordable for most people. Um, and so we weren't so it was difficult to widen your audience and get your name out and show people what you were doing because you just it was really hard to get in the, into the, the pages of the best nearly in the top magazines 
because um, you couldn't afford, afford the advertising. And um, so you, we were very much on the fringe. Yeah. But actually, um, I mean, GQ did an amazing, made, made an amazing difference um, alongside with um, Andrew Rowlands, Randerson Shepherd, and Joe Levin at GQ. They clubbed together to obviously extremely for women in the business and been able to make things happen um, and they may got together a consortium of their favorite tailors in Savile Row and shirt makers um, shoemakers hat makers the traditional British brands um, the small ones and they put together um, the first it was about eight years ago and it was called oh help I yeah. can't remember the title of it now the English, it English gentleman yeah I think um, and they did a yeah, so they made it part of Fashion Week and they did a big show. The first one was at, at um, Spencer House and they set it all up like a grand English house with all the different rooms, um, men dressed for, in black tie dinner, men dressed in um, in shooting clothes. We, we even had a sort of man with his, I, I lent my dog and he was standing outside Spencer House to, top to toe in tweeds and shoot for shooting clothes. I remember that. Uh, with, with yeah. Do you remember? It was about um, the time I set up Make It British, I think. Really, really, yeah. Kate, right, yeah. I mean, that really was the start of it because that mm. went splashing all over. You know, it was most beautifully photographed, beautifully styled um, and by Joe. And it was obviously just the sort of the best of everything. And they um, and we all, and it, you know, Ando organized the financial side of it. We all had to put a little bit in, but it was nothing compared with, you know, properly showing at Fashion Week. And it made it affordable for us all to be absolutely splashed over the page of GQ and, mm. and, have, and have all that... Um, you know all the so, so all the business that comes to see London Fashion Week came, and that so that was the beginning of men's London Fashion Week men's, and um, which I think you know, was just re- that really really t- turned a corner for us all. Plus, that was also the time, like I say, when I set up Make It British, and there was beginning to be more of a focus on sort of classic. British, you know, classic English clothing and heritage brands and and. Mm. Savile Row fitted in very well with that. And there was, like you say, a more of a crossover started happening between those traditional brands and the fashion, um, the more fashion yeah. brands. And yeah. It's so basically then it became fashion, but fashionable, you know, it mm. bespoke suddenly became really fashionable and, and young young men were now really aspiring to have bespoke shirts, bespoke suit, bespoke shoes. Um and there were obviously a lot more tailors, for instance, started you know, a bespoke suit became more affordable. Um, and um, in German Street, it I think, yes, it just made people also, younger people, not feel it was a world that they couldn't go into. They couldn't yeah. step into the into a shop and even just look and find out about it. And um, so it really opened it up to, and made it absolutely the height of fashion. Suddenly it became like it used to, you know, as it used to be. So what what percentage, what's the split with your collection between those shirts that you make bespoke for clients and those that people buy off the shelf? Well, um, in our shop, it's about it's about 60 percent bespoke. Wow. Um, which is a lot, obviously. But yeah. then we are in the, you know, we're the epicenter of male bespoke world in the world. Because <laughs> if people want, you know, want to put for men's highest end bespoke, British bespoke, whether it's shoes or you know, shirts or suits. It's um, 
it, it, you know, they come to us. So we do have a very international clientele and they pilgrimage from all over the world to come and find true bespoke, true mm. sort of British bespoke. Um, as far as our, our production, you know, at our at our shirt factory and obviously all the other accessory, accessories we make, it's more like, um, it's a big proportion, it's more like 60% ready to wear because we do, we do a lot for um, we make collections for matches, fashion, men's and women's, and Netta Porter and Mr. Porter. So the wholesale has become a really important part of our production now, to which has helped us grow our production hugely. Um, so numbers proportionally of what we actually make, probably about sixty percent is is um, ready to wear. So at what point did the factory come about? When did you decide you wanted to own your own produ- production like that? Well, I had the little one in London, and mm. um, for five years, and then when I had, I had, I had uh, my children, I found it really too much to do. We have to have the responsibility of providing work because we did used to provide work. For, we used to um, make for other people as well, and I found it too much to do to mm. do that at the same time. So I actually I co-owned it with um, the fellow shirt maker Stephen Lacter, and so Stephen took over my 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 other half and. Um, and I, I then subcontracted to a wonderful shirt factory called Rainer and Sturgis, a lovely man, Nigel ah, Sturgis. Yes. You know, yeah. Second generation. Somerset, um, isn't it? He, oh, no, he was in, it... um, in, in Surrey. But oh, really? I think they've so moved, they've moved it now. Yeah, I it didn't was, know it was that. Because mm. that's Kent. where I live. Sorry, sorry, Kent. Sorry, Kent. Yes. Gillingham in Kent, or is it Gillingham? Yes. Gillingham, Kent, yeah. Nigel Sturgis, you know, complete gentleman, lovely, lovely shirt making business. I've learned from various people along the way. Well, I've, I've seen ways that people have businesses that, you know, you admire and you like and you try and learn from them. And Nigel had the most wonderful business. They absolutely loved him. And he's a real gentleman, a real Eastfeet. And we did all our orders, shirt orders, by different composers' names. And I we ran out shortly and had to things that I and we had to keep looking them up and try and impressing Nigel. Um, but he was, and they made lovely shirts. Um, but in the end, he he did had to, he had to sell it in the end. Um, mm. So I set up this business in um, the I opened my factory in Gloucester about ten years ago now, and yes, we this is our tenth anniversary. So um, and that was because. The, the rain and surge had been taken over. The quality was going down quite a lot. Um, it wasn't the same at all, the same shirt makers as when Nigel owned it. Mm. A lot of the very skilled people were leaving. And um, and I realized I'd just got a huge order from Saks Fifth Avenue, 2,000 shirts opening five doors in, in America. And it was absolutely at that point that I realized that the production, you know, I didn't have this wonderful line of communication with Nigel anymore. And I, I lost confidence in the production actually at that point. And <clears throat> things were late and not quite as I wanted. So I had a terrible shock, basically. I, I at a point when I was opening in New York, I in, in, in across the states, um, I, I I lost control of my production. And when oh I gosh. came back from that launch visit, um, I was launching one of the stores. Um, I I was just I, I I was completely. I knew I had to set up my own production again it's mm. like many things in life you know something bad forces you or you know a very very difficult situation forces you to get out of that situation and into a new one that otherwise you might not necessarily have dared to do so I, I just the moment I got off the airplane I 
Um, I went to Rain and Sturgis. I picked up all my my patterns and I waved goodbye to many of the lovely people I knew who I'd known for a long time and um, took everything back home and put it in a garage, patterns, fabrics, everything, and put an advertisement in the local paper. <clears throat> and I, for, for, for t- experienced shirt makers, seamstresses, cutters, machines, everything. And I just got this fantastic response. Um, we're in a very creative area and there is a, there is a lot of, of, of clothing industry. I mean, it's all small things, but there is. So I got this amazing response. So that got me up and started again with a smaller building up the road in Gloucester. Brilliant. Because I always wondered how, when you first set up the factory, how you found the staff. So Gloucester actually had quite a few people that had the sewing skills that were already there. Yes, this yeah. area. And I mean, Stroud is very creative as well. That sort of more art world, Damien Hurst world. But yes, there is a lot of, there's a lot of sewing skills. Um, and Turnbull and Asa also have their factory in Gloucester. So, you know, we really are a specialist city for, for shirt making now. Mm. It's so often that I hear people say, you know, the reason I've now got my own factory and control of my own production is because it's something happened, something you know, really badly went wrong with my existing production. I decided that I just needed total control over it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, I'd, I'd always been, I'd always felt in control because I'd always had my own production. Well, I had my own production for five years. Mm. And as I said, it was when I really, it makes it so much easier to sell. You sell with confidence and pride, you know, the association of a, and, and when you, when I walked out of Saks Fifth Avenue, having looked at my shirts that weren't how I would, want them to be made I just realized this absolute cathartic thoughts I walked down you know Fifth Avenue just thinking Madison Avenue is thinking oh my god I'm not in control and I've got to get back in control yeah and has there been any regrets at all about opening that factory none absolutely none um we have built it now we've got about 24 of us here and it's led by I couldn't have done it without Kathmia who is um our supervisor does all our training and she trains from scratch. She's not trained to train. She's just so, such a superb machinist, seamstress, um, bespoke and ready to wear shirt maker and has been doing that for 30 years. She is so skilled and she can pass on her skills. And that's why we've been able to grow because we're very much employing our original team are all my age. Um, and now we've been employing young people to give the business and the shirt making, you know, so the skills of shirt making a future. Um, so it's not going to be dying out with us. It's going to be going on because we've got, you know, we've, girls come to us 16, 17 um, and they train. Yeah, so you, you've got a really good training. I mean, tell me more about the training school because it's quite special, mm-hmm. isn't it? Well, it was really, I've, at first, you know, people say you can't get track people into manufacturing anymore and people don't want to you know, go, they don't want to so cut whatever I mean it's more in the interest in from coming out of fashion colleges is designing and pattern cutting and cutting but it was they, you know a lot of the big fashion schools were not even teaching sewing anymore people were the students were sending out for their collections to be made sewn by somebody else so actually you just you know that you, it's as far as yeah. if you want to give jobs you know for me um, and for somebody with a with a clothes making business you need a couple two cutters to every you know 20s machinists you don't need nearly as many cutters. So realistically, jobs-wise, so you can't. There's not that many jobs to offer as cutters, pattern makers. Yeah. So if you want to go into the creative clothing industry, you know, you've got to be able to sew. So um, 
and I realized it just was being, it was, they were almost demeaning the seam, the, 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 the machining side of, of, of our industry, whereas beautiful sewing and stitching is one of the things that's most admired in, 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 the, in the world of high-end clothing and couture, whether it's couture or ready to wear, you know, beautiful stitching is vital. So I thought, right, how am I going to make it more appealing to young people, you know, to realize that they are so vital part of the fashion industry um, and so I actually went to see I was introduced to Jonathan Newhouse from Condé Nast um, you know, he was obviously head of Condé Nast International mm. and he was also trying to promote the British um, um, clothes making industry I'd ended up going to Dining Street speaking to one of David Cameron then's advisors um, someone called Daniel Korski and he really listened to me and he said let's try and do something here I mean he introduced me to he said funnily enough um, Jonathan Newhouse was here in Dining Street yesterday yesterday also saying he really wants to promote the clothing industry in Britain. So I had a, a, a meeting with um, with Jonathan Newhouse and he was just, he, he was so, so good. It was a very short meeting. He said, what do you want to achieve? I said, I just want to get young people interested in sewing again. There are jobs in the sewing. There's not so many jobs in cutting and pattern making. And if I could have some kind of association with Condé Nast, then nothing could make it more obviously part of the fashion industry and, and give it the, you know, the glamour and the importance that, that, it, yeah. that it should have and those, and those people, skilled machines and seamstress it should have. So I see, wait, what should we do? And we set up the Condé Nast, um, the Emma Willis Condé Nast Sewing Scholarship. And he sponsored us. So Condé Nast International sponsored us for five years to give a, a like a bursary, a sponsorship of £10,000 each year for me to find somebody who who couldn't, wouldn't necessarily um, be going to university or fashion college. Um, and we could um, train and give um, for a year, give them um, the training and, you know, earn, earning and learning with the then obviously the hope to employ them and give them a, a career in the business. And, and last, um, in November, I took the five, our five Condé Nast scholars to meet Jonathan Newhouse um, at, um, at his offices at their headquarters in London. And we had the most fantastic meeting and he gave them all a certificate. We had lovely certificates printed for them all. Um, and he congratulated them all on their contribution to the British sewing industry and the British fashion industry um, and had a wonderful meeting with them and asked them each to tell their stories. And one one young woman who's had a very challenging time and he did want me to also give opportunities to people who'd who had had challenges um mm. she um actually she cried in the midst of her story she's a she's a Aww. very she's a fantastically you know tough little thing but she um she she's she actually she, she couldn't hold back the tears and she thanked him she said this has changed my life because she's um, from she was from a, a, a town in the north and there was absolutely no job prospects for her and many of her friends um and I was tipped off about her by one of the injured soldiers I know um, who who knows who knew her father and told me her story. Um, and it was just really moving. And he had, you know, between, well, for, with their sponsorship, they, they had given five young women um, a really, uh, you know, a fantastic career now. And they are, they, they do feel absolutely as they are part of the fashion industry. You know, I put them on our Instagram, we, you know, really, really highlight highlight the, the people who are actually making and, and that's who actually people are interested in too. Brilliant. So how many apprentices do you hope to sort of train? I mean, how many, what, they've all stayed with you, I assume, the ones that you've already yes. trained by the sound of things, which is amazing. How many more will you take on? Is it going to be an ongoing thing? 
Well, I think actually we've sort of, we've done what we wanted to do. We very much brought into, because we've had lots, you know, happily we've had a lot of press about this and, and I think we've raised the profile of, of, of the seamstresses and businesses and machinists and, and of what skill it takes. Um, and it's also shown that young people are in the industry. So therefore, it's attracting young people more. I mean, I know I'm just a very, very small business, but you know we do make as much noise as we can as well with our social media and, and press where we can to tell that positive story. Um, and um, and I have no problem now with attracting young people. We're approached all the time. So um, I think we've got the ball rolling and um, certainly, and I hope it goes across, you know, wider than us. But we also have set up um, on the, on a wider training in, in sewing and, um, and shirt making. One of the only Condé Nascola who didn't stay with us, which was all planned, was um, um, a lady called Aisha Randera. And she, I met her, she is from the Muslim community in Gloucester and has been and works for this wonderful charity called um, City, it's called City Farm and um, the Friendship Cafe. And it's a, the Friendship City Farm is self-explanatory and is a sensational place with animals and children learn to, um, children with all sorts of challenges learn to um, learn to gain confidence and 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 live happier lives and and learn through learning to care for animals and then the friendship cafe has endless endless social community things bringing people from particularly the refugee population which we have a we have lots of refugees in, in Gloucester and it mixes everybody up together it also teaches English. It does lots of kids clubs. So lots of people from different, you know, all different cultures meet and befriend. So within that, I was so inspired by Aisha's, um, Aisha and, and Imran who run this. And I said to Aisha, let's try and set up a sewing, some, a sewing, some sort of sewing opportunity here, sewing club or something. So Aisha, um, so Aisha came and trained with us for a year. Imran let her go. She came and trained with us for a year. Um, she's already had pretty good sewing skills, but she seriously upskilled herself and learned to make yeah. a shirt. And um, and then we raised money from local friends in, in Gloucestershire who gave really generously, and we built a fabulous sewing room at the cafe, um, at the Friendship Cafe, a huge light room built lot by volunteers um, in the in the community and in the in the city. And um, and now Aisha runs sewing classes there, and so that is called they they kindly called it the Emma Willis Sewing School, um, the Emma Willis Sewing Studio, um, and there are classes running. Aisha runs. It's actually expanded into crocheting and knitting and all sorts of things. Um, so the training Brilliant. goes on and and and, and out, out there in the city as well as as well as in our business, which we we're training all the time. So. Fantastic. Amazing. I must I mean, I've been meaning to come out and visit you for so long. When we get out of lockdown, I'm definitely coming to Gloucester. Yes, it would be <laughs> lovely to lovely to welcome you here. Brilliant. Well, um, Emma, thank you very much for your time um, today on the podcast. Really amazing to hear your story. Is there anything else that you would like to add that you would like to tell everyone before we go? Well, um, well done you, Kate. I mean, it's so great to have somebody else so passionate about British making, manufacturing product. And, of, you know, to, I think we have all done a lot. Um, I think we've done a lot in the last few years to really raise its profile and make it a healthy, um, a really healthy, healthy industry. Um, and together we will bounce back after this 
very, very odd stage um, I'm with, with, with all of us and, and, and make it carry on growing. So I'd, well, really, I'd, I'd like to thank you, Kate, as well for, for playing such a huge part in that. Well, thank you. I mean, I think the UK manufacturing, I think the UK manufacturing industry and people like yourself, Emma, are going to have, uh, you know, it's amazing opportunities in the years to come, definitely, because there's going to be so much more of a focus on manufacturing locally. So well done you for setting up that factory and let's hope it doubles in size in the coming years. <laughs> definitely, Kate. We've got room. We've got, we're rattling around in this windy old rundown 18th century townhouse so <laughs> room <Brilliant>. to expand <laughs> and where can everyone find you what's your website address and your instagram so it's um instagram is emma willis london and our website is just emmawillis.com brilliant fantastic thank you very much for joining me today that's a pleasure thank you kate and anyone can come and visit us in gloucester as well welcome <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday, plus there's bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.